0: You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started.
1: Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. During the last few months, during the COVID pandemic, our patients have typically either self-isolated themselves from others, and sometimes as inpatients, they really have not been allowed to have family and caregivers as visitors. So this is a particularly good time to talk about caregivers and family and cancer care. And today we'll be joined by Dr. Allison Applebaum, who's an assistant attending psychologist and also the director of the Caregiver's Clinic for the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Allison, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and honor to be here.
1: So I wanted to ask you first, I mean, we talk about caregivers, but in your experience, who are caregivers for our patients? And then I want to ask you also, what are their roles? Sure, sure.
2: So very simply put, caregivers are what is often referred to as informal caregivers. These are partners, relatives, parents, friends, anyone in the family network, chosen or blood family who provides assistance to patients with often life-threatening or incurable illnesses. This assistance is in pretty much every domain from the physical and emotional to financial and otherwise. It's important to differentiate informal caregivers from the formal caregivers. These are healthcare providers, you and me, who are providing care to our Mm -hmm. patients as part of our daily work. So I think it's important to say right now that we will all be touched by the caregiving role at some point in our lives former First Lady Rosalind Carter is very famous for saying there are four kinds of people in the world, those who were caregivers, those who are caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. And so we all fall into this category. And so I just want to acknowledge that right at the outset, this is becoming recognized as a topic that is relevant for all of us.
1: It certainly is. Our patients, obviously, with blood cancers are a very heterogeneous group, but what they do share is that moment when a doctor or a clinician says, you have cancer. And so I wanted to go through with you, what is the journey that patients go through that time of diagnosis and treatment, what I would typically call the acute survivorship, but also at the same time, what's the caregiver's experience And what are some of the similarities and the differences?
2: This is a really important question. So I think right at the outset, that point of initial diagnosis, this is a moment of, for many, great surprise and shock, high distress. Many folks, both patients and their caregivers, will experience symptoms of what we call post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress symptoms just because of the nature of how they've received the diagnosis or just the shock of having a cancer diagnosis, we know it can be a traumatic stressor. And then at this point, often we see a similar path for both patients and caregivers who go into often problem-solving mode, into that fight-or-flight mode, and seeking a first and second and even third opinion. Interestingly, what we see is during this period of active care, this is a time when patients are very, very hooked into the medical system as our caregivers, and there's a lot of energy surrounding patients and supporting them on their journey. And I would say that this is somewhat where we see a a variation between patients and caregivers. And oftentimes during this period of active care, caregivers are devoting all of their energy to patients. And oftentimes they're not in receipt of very much support. Psychologically, psychosocially, what we actually see at the end of that treatment period, you referenced that active survivorship. I wanted to make an important point here. This is a time when for many patients, when they reach that point, they take an exhale they return to their quote-unquote new normal, they experience a decrease in anxiety, a decrease in depression, they have a new lease on life, and they wanna return to their baseline. This is actually a point when we see a very different experience among caregivers. Oftentimes, caregivers during these initial phases of diagnosis and treatment, they are in fight or flight mode, they are not necessarily allowing themselves to connect to many of the negative emotions that are naturally arising. We see that when patients enter survivorship, this is the time when we see an increase in distress and anxiety and depression, for example, in caregivers. And I think importantly for all of you listening, this is often the moment when our families, patients and caregivers, become disconnected from the healthcare system. And it's the same moment when caregivers are in greatest need of our support.
1: I'd love to delve into this a little bit more. That is an interesting disconnect in some ways. I can picture patients saying, geez, I'm glad to be done. I'm moving on to a different phase of my journey. But where is the hang-up, the difficulty for caregivers, do you think?
2: No, I think it's not necessarily a hang-up. I think it's, and this is, I should just say, comes from now 10 years of providing care in our caregivers clinic at Memorial and, of course, all the research that I've done That during this period of active treatment from diagnosis and treatment into that initial point of survivorship, I think caregivers do a lot of avoidance to protect themselves from all of these emotions. They are wanting just to focus their energy on patients. They're just wanting to seek care and they're likely putting up guards against connecting to these negative emotions. So I think what's happening is that there's almost like a delayed reaction at the moment when Mm -hmm. patients are finally able to return to life. Caregivers actually take an exhale and in some ways then Mm -hmm. come into contact with all the feelings they likely were avoiding to some extent in order to take care of their loved one with cancer.
1: Right, right. So it's almost Like someone who would say, you know, I was faced by a tremendously stressful situation. There was a car accident. There was an acute illness. There was a problem that my child had. And I was able to handle it at the time, but I feel like I'm falling apart later.
2: Exactly. Spot on.
1: Interesting. That process in the sense of putting one foot in front of another and getting through that initial phase as a caregiver – would imagine, I would think, maybe suppressing all that emotion takes a lot of energy, or not.
2: Absolutely. Oftentimes in my clinic, I will say to patients, and I should say, I refer to the caregivers with whom I work as patients, I will say to them, boy, it's taking you a lot of energy to hide your sadness from your husband. Would it be helpful for you to start to let some of that out? It takes a lot of energy for us to hold our emotions in and keep a straight face or put on a happy face or you know, how hopeful you are when, in fact, you're terrified inside. And so it takes a lot of energy. And a lot of the work I do is really helping caregivers to preserve the resources they have, because for many, thankfully, it is a long haul, and they need to keep going.
1: Sometimes the cancer experience is very acute for six months, and then people move on to a different phase of survivorship. Other times it's really chronically living with cancer, and what I've read about is chronic survivorship. What's that experience like for the patient, for caregivers, when cancer is a long-term illness? How's that experience of chronic survivorship different than acute, and how's it different between, again, patient and caregiver?
2: Sure, sure. You know, of course, in the acute illness settings, there's usually an emergency. Something happens quite suddenly or dramatically. Care is received either in the in or outpatient setting. And then there's a, you know, resuming a new normal return to baseline of functioning and and things are okay. I would say more often with the families I'm working with, there's more of this chronic nature. Cancer is more of a chronic disease now, thankfully, based on all of the phenomenal therapeutic technologies we have. You know, but this presents an interesting situation where the reality of the potential for recurrence is so often in everyone's mind. I usually use a very silly example in clinic, and I'll say to a patient, for the next five seconds, I don't want you to think about a bright pink elephant. And I'll wait for five seconds. And the reality is that when we tell ourselves to not think about a bright pink elephant, that bright pink elephant comes at us full force. And I use this example because to characterize the experience of both patients and caregivers to answer your question, Ken, are actually quite similar here in terms of fear of recurrence. That pink elephant is always around. And so I think that the key challenge for both patients and caregivers in the setting of chronic illness is how to sit with uncertainty. How do you connect and reconnect to life in a meaningful way? while knowing that there's a possibility of a recurrence. And so I would say that the key challenge for both patients and caregivers is that, sitting with uncertainty, that fear of recurrence, which we know is prominent in both patients and caregivers alike.
1: One of the things that I think about quite a bit with my own patients I think we all have a, at least a desire for certainty, for predictability. And all of a sudden with a cancer diagnosis, that sense of predictability of having a schedule is really disrupted. And then living with cancer and the risk of recurrence is again, I guess living in fear that the same thing is going to keep happening forever.
2: Exactly. And I think, you know, this is an interesting point because there is a measure of security associated with physically going into a treatment center for your regular care or going for those three months or six months follow-ups. And many patients and family members will feel unheld at the time they enter survivorship and they're no longer going in as regularly. And there is a greater level of uncertainty. And that's what we all need to sit with. And again, I think it's the task that we all as humans have to face to sit with that pink elephant, whatever that elephant might be.
1: For caregivers, and let's say those that are a spouse, a partner, an intimate partner, what do you see in terms of how do they take care of their own, their worry, their depression, and the other feelings that they have? What are some of the things that people do that's uh, in that situation that's helpful, and what are some things that may be
2: counterproductive? Sure, sure. I think I want to start by saying something about, you know, why I do the work I do and the department I come from. We have a department of psychiatry at Memorial Sloan Kettering, not because patients with cancer and their caregivers are mentally ill, but because facing cancer is challenging. And so the experience of anxiety and depression and all the things you just mentioned, these are incredibly common and expected in caregivers. So, of course, as a clinical psychologist doing the work that I do, my first answer in terms of what are some of the good things caregivers can do is, of course, seek professional support. And I'm happy to say that most comprehensive cancer centers across the country, there's many resources out there that provide psychosocial support for caregivers. I think behind that is the bigger answer, which is communication. The more we express our emotions, whether it's through verbal words, written words, speaking words, through therapy, talking to friends, the better that we do. We keep things in. It doesn't help us whatsoever. In addition, I think one of the challenges, of course, is particularly during that initial phase of diagnosis and treatment, this is a time when many caregivers don't want to be sharing with their one with cancer what a hard time they're having. And so it's a particular mm-hmm. challenge often when, let's just say, as you said, it's a marital partnership, for example, and a woman's husband is diagnosed, and that husband once was her go-to person, her shoulder to lean on her rock, and now he can't be. Oftentimes, it's very challenging for caregivers to find that source of support outside of the patient. So what are some of the unhealthy things people do? Not expressing their emotions for sure, not actually listening to their bodies when their bodies are telling them that they need to sleep, they need to eat, they need to exercise, Mm -hmm. they need to take time just merely to breathe not allowing others to help is so interesting caregivers are so good at taking responsibility for everything and so good at telling people no when help is is offered and so much of what i do in the clinic is coaching caregivers to delegate to ask for help especially when they're feeling overwhelmed and anxious and depressed i think that all caregivers should have the opportunity to receive some sort of professional support from a psychologist or a psychiatrist or social worker but even barring that, there are phenomenal peer-to-peer support groups online that you can find, and there's great information through many organizations. So there's lots of good things to do if you are feeling the stress.
1: So I actually just wrote down a keyword: coaching. Tell us about it. I mean, it sounds like these are teachable skills. So how do you coach patients and caregivers?
2: I'm interested in myself in using that word. I like to think about. This one, I have the opportunity to work with caregivers who are not in crisis. So let's just say they're not with a patient who's imminently going to die, or there's no acute crisis. There's an opportunity for this type of coaching. And I then refer to the work that we do as prehab or prehabilitation. So listeners know what rehabilitation is, right? We go to, we rehabilitate after a physical injury, for example. With prehabilitation, I like to think about the work I'm doing as strengthening caregivers' resources, booing up all that's already there, and then thinking about new ways in which that caregiver can develop resources along the way. So one way certainly is merely by having emotional support, that's helpful. I engage in a lot of problem solving. So for example, helping caregivers to think about how they can go about getting a second opinion if need be, or dealing with financial issues arising from cancer and treatment i do a lot of communication skills training in fact if i think about the the biggest component of the coaching i do is in communication skills training i do a lot of modeling for how caregivers can be asking questions of the oncologists and other healthcare providers i do a lot of practice with caregivers of how they can have potentially challenging conversations with their loved ones and really encouraging them to find their voice and to speak up particularly in medical encounters and so i guess you know, I think of what I do as psychotherapy, but I guess also I I might be a caregiver coach in in a way.
1: Yeah, yeah, sounds that way. And actually, it even inspires me in some ways that I think, uh, fortunately, in the community, not all of our patients have the same level of uh, access to resources as in some of the big cancer centers. But we, meaning I, other clinicians, uh, nurses, I think, hopefully can provide support and perhaps some coaching for caregivers in the same situation. I mean, does that sound like a reasonable mission?
2: It sounds like the best possible mission. I think the simplest and most powerful intervention you can do is just ask the caregiver sitting in front of you, whether that's in front of you in person or in front of you over the telehealth conference line. Just ask them, how are you doing? Merely acknowledging the caregiver's presence is huge, asking how they're doing, and actually thinking about what you, in your role within your setting, can do to help support that caregiver. I think there's so much that you all can do um, right on the front line.
1: All right, so I'm going to tell you about a real-life situation. And, again, just for modeling here of uh, ways to respond – Two weeks ago, I was with a woman who's about 50 who's being treated for lymphoma. And I said to her, I said, you know what, how are you doing? Pretty open-ended, and it was clear that it was related to feelings, emotions. And she's saying, oh, I'm good. I'm just really good. And meanwhile, her spouse was in the background shaking his head, no. I mean, basically making it very clear that there were big problems. So I'm glad to share with you how I handle a bit, but I'm actually more interested in your thoughts. What are some strategies for situations like that, and and how can we make that a a learning experience for everybody?
2: Sure. So one thing I would do in that situation, the way that you described it, I'm visualizing the the caregiver sort of in the background behind the patient. And the first thing I would do is invite that person to step forward. I'd say, well, can you actually come up and sit next to your, let's just say, mother or your wife? You sit right next to her. Right. And so bring the patient and caregiver to the same physical location so they're actually literally on the same page. And then I would say, mm-hmm. you know, I'm noticing, addressing then the caregiver, that you might feel differently. Can you share how you feel? Do you have concerns about your loved one that she's not expressed? And just be very direct. Um, I think those are really great opportunities because you're getting a lot of data right in that moment. And, you know, it's interesting, I, I know I have said this to you in a previous conversation, but that caregiver is your best friend in terms of being a source of data. They're on the front lines, they see what's going on, they know what behaviors, health-related behaviors that patient is and is not engaging in. And so I would invite them into the conversation. I think the other piece is really setting the tone that these meetings you're having with your patients, these are meetings that involve the patient and caregiver. And right at the outset saying, addressing the caregiver directly and saying, I want your input, I want this to be a group discussion, I really welcome your feedback. I think that's really helpful. And the earlier you do that with the patient and caregivers together, that sets the tone and really is going to allow for greater, you know, openness and vulnerability as time goes on.
1: It really sounds like a great idea in the sense inviting them in even in the first session. Yeah, absolutely. So, Alison, I want to thank you because it reminds me as a medical oncologist that taking that extra minute and engaging the family and the caregivers early in the process, acknowledging them may actually have benefit that's long lasting in our relationships absolutely, absolutely going to change the topic a little bit, but um, I also wanted to ask you about sexuality and intimacy it 's a big part of life for many people uh, throughout their their lifetime. What happens to intimacy and sexuality? For caregivers and for patients who, again, are in an intimate uh, relationship.
2: I'm really glad that you bring this up because it's such an important topic. I don't think it gets discussed enough. And I think that this is such an important piece of what it means to be human, to feel the capacity to have intimacy and a sexual relationship with someone. And certainly, you know, this is an area that very often gets very impacted by the cancer journey, either because of the physical impact of cancer or its treatment on the patient or the emotional impact on both patient and caregiver. So, you know, I think this is something that needs to be discussed openly. I think that what one thing that that we as healthcare providers can do is acknowledge the importance of this part of life. Many patients and caregivers will talk about feeling a significant loss in life when this part of their relationship doesn't get expression. And, and many family members will actually, you know, say probably not surprisingly that they feel guilty That they're even talking about this that they're even thinking that it's a shame that they can no longer have this intimate relationship and again i think it's just really important that we talk about this and normalize it and just because one is experiencing cancer in themselves or their loved one is experiencing cancer doesn't mean that this part of life necessarily needs to go away though of course oftentimes there's adjustments that need to be made Uh, you know when you ask the question what came to mind is a beautiful session i had done early on at Memorial, and this was with a caregiver and his partner transitioned to hospice care. He was at end of life. And this was a Mm -hmm. couple who, before this his husband's diagnosis, they had had an incredible sexual relationship, and their intimate life was a very important part of their marriage. And this was pretty devastating to them that this had not been able to be carried out. And in one of the sessions I did with the two of them towards end of life, we talked about what it means to be intimate with one another. And certainly, of course, sexual intimacy is one part of that. But there are other things that can be done and ways in which we can connect one-on-one with one another. And what that session did was led to the two of them spending time just embracing one another, just holding Mm -hmm. one another. And that intimacy really connected to that part of their relationship that they had been missing. It's great to be able to have full sexual experiences, and yet the idea of intimacy is so much bigger and so just merely holding one's hand hugging someone touching someone rubbing someone these things can still Mm -hmm. be done independent of cancerous treatment so really thinking not just about the importance of acknowledging this part of being human but then thinking about really what it means to have intimacy and one other thing i'll just say is and i guess we put this in the category of coaching but oftentimes i'll ask caregivers to ask their loved one who may be physically limited because of their cancer experience to ask directly, what is it that I can do that would feel good? What is it that I can do that will make you feel loved? What is it that Mm. I can do? What is it that we can do that will help us to feel And just asking, because, you know, if we don't ask, sometimes we just feel like it's not wanted. And and most often, both people in that partnership want to have some intimacy. It's just maybe a matter of talking about how that can happen. Well,
1: I have to say, this has obviously been a very challenging few months in terms of COVID and its effect on caring for people with cancer and and just life in general. So what have been your observations about how the COVID pandemic has affected cancer care and, again, the role of caregivers?
2: Sure. I'm going to start with caregivers just because that's my area of expertise. So, of course, the entire setting of cancer care has shifted. I really feel like never has the critical role played by caregivers been more evident than it is now in our COVID-19 pandemic, just because of the fact that, you know, all of us, we are maintaining social isolation and care is happening at home. You know, it's very clear that as the devastating impact of the pandemic emerges, so too do we see all of the responsibilities that are on caregivers. Social distancing is obviously important, but it has some unintended negative consequences for caregivers. Historically, caregivers have been able to rely on home health aides and visiting nurses to assist with care. That's no longer the case. Historically, perhaps there were care networks, multiple family members involved in care. That's no longer the case. And many Mm -hmm. caregivers on the other side of that are providing care from a distance. So certainly, The responsibilities have increased and there's a slight shift right now, but in most medical centers, if patients have to be admitted, you know, caregivers are not able to go be by their side. And that separation is just an incredibly distressing experience, both for patients and for caregivers. The setting is really forcing all patients and families facing cancer to engage in really difficult conversations that I think we all need to be engaging in anyway about the future, about advanced care planning, about all the what ifs that could Mm. happen if treatment doesn't go well or if one were to contract COVID. We are all providing care or many of us are providing care over telehealth modalities. I and colleagues at Memorial we are seeing patients over telepsychiatry and Mm -hmm. while that poses certain challenges you know at the same time it's a wonderful thing to be able to provide care at a distance and I think it's going to allow us to reach a greater number of patients and caregivers who historically may not have been able to come in physically to our treatment centers for care, but now we can reach them at the, you know, the press of a button. So a lot has been changing.
1: It's a nice opportunity to look at what are some of the changes during COVID that, in fact, maybe we can adopt and adapt for the future in terms of extending the services outside the walls of our own institutions.
2: Absolutely. It's an opportunity. Really?
1: At the ASCO meeting this past year, there were several abstracts and presentations on the whole topic of teaching uh, communication skills, training caregivers and patients in terms of communication. Again, do you find these are teachable skills? What advice would you give oncology clinicians in that regard, in terms of how to share this with patients?
2: I 100% believe that these are all teachable skills. I think communication skills are skills that we all can learn, we all can teach. It's phenomenal that this is what we're seeing at ASCO right now. And this is certainly where the field of cancer caregiving in many ways is going. We have a communication skills training program at my own institution to help caregivers learn to have those difficult conversations with patients and healthcare providers. I think it's important, you know, when I do the coaching, I will say to caregivers, to patients, you know, to not assume that the oncologist, the healthcare professional is going to give them all the information that they need or want. And that there is some responsibility on patients and caregivers to ask questions. And so I guess the reverse is true, that healthcare providers need to keep in mind that people right in front of them, the patients, the caregiver may have questions that were unanswered to take time to ask those questions. I think another thing to keep in mind is, When we're anxious or distressed or scared or sad, we are in what we call the fight or flight mode. Our cortisol, our stress hormone levels are high. And in that moment, it's very difficult to comprehend complex information. And so I think it's important that everyone realizes that the patient and caregiver in front of you may not be able to digest all of the medical information that you're giving just by virtue of the fact that there's distress. And of course, we are talking often about very complex ideas and treatments. Mm -hmm. And so I Mm -hmm. think it's really important that we as healthcare providers are asking questions to ensure that the knowledge is retained, that the patient and Mm -hmm. caregiver with whom we're meeting understands what we're saying, has asked their questions, and feels like they can move forward. Empowering patients and caregivers to ask the right questions is only going to help us, right? So let's just say a poor question might be, how much time do I have left, Doc? Right? That's not a great question. A good question might be, can you tell me what we can expect from this current treatment? And if this current yeah. treatment doesn't work, what do you see mm. as our next steps? You know, I encourage caregivers mm. to be as specific as possible when asking these questions. And these are all very teachable, very coachable.
1: It's a nice reminder. We as the medical side of cancer care probably well, we don't have the training nor the resources to counsel patients through all of this and their caregivers, but we do have the ability, the time, and I think the motivation to acknowledge, to ask, to find out what people need uh, and identify those needs. You were saying even earlier, simply just uh recognizing caregivers as being in the room, recognizing emotion and problems already is a, is a step in the right direction. Exactly. Also, any other roles that caregivers have? What are the challenges that they face?
2: Sure, you know it's so interesting. When people ask me what caregivers do, I often take a deep breath and I say the question really should be what don't they do? Because caregivers mm-hmm. just basically do everything. You know, they're providing what we call instrumental support, so that's help with activities of daily living, helping patients to take their medications, to get dressed, to get to doctor's appointments, and all of that. And they're also providing emotional support. And again, oftentimes this is at a moment when their caregivers are no longer in receipt of emotional support from the patient. You know, caregiving is a full-time job. On average, mm-hmm. this is a recent study from, well, this was 2015, so a little less recent now. We found that caregivers provided care for 8.3 hours a day for 13.7 months. That is a full-time job, wow. oftentimes conducted in addition to full-time paid employment, child care, right. elder care, everything else. Caregivers are overwhelmed. There's oftentimes just no time in the day for themselves.
1: Yep, all true. Any other resources that you would recommend?
2: Sure. It's interesting. One of the, I guess, silver linings of this era of COVID is that we've really seen an increase in openness to receipt of support online. So there's phenomenal resources through the LLS, online support groups and information, as well as through the American Cancer Society And I think, you know, it's important to note, and of course, this is coming from someone who really enjoys doing therapy in person, but receiving support in these online groups is just as powerful as receipt of support in person. So I encourage all of you who have caregivers in your practices to refer them to these phenomenal organizations.
1: This is Dr. Ken Miller, and first I want to thank all of you for listening to this program. I also especially want to thank Dr. Allison Applebaum, who's an assistant attending psychologist and also director of the Caregivers Clinic at the Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center. Uh, Allison, this has been such an enjoyable and wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And again, I want to take the opportunity to share more information with all of you on LLS resources for your patients and for you as well. To access continuing education activities and other healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org slash CE. And for any questions you have or to refer a patient for support, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955- Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, as well as financial, psychosocial, and other support resources. I also encourage you to subscribe to receive announcements of upcoming podcast episodes at www.lls.org slash HCPpodcast.
0: Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting LLS.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next
1: time.